Today's message is going to be very difficult for me to, to deliver because it can be so easily misunderstood. So I want you to know as I enter this message today, I'm, I'm aware of that. Be in prayer for me that I will say what I should and that I won't say what I shouldn't, okay? Um, this is the second part to a message that I shared a couple of weeks ago. So if you were here, uh, you know what I was talking about on stewardship. I'll come back briefly to that when we get into the message. And uh, I will talk about um, what, uh, what I was talking about then. I'm trying to get this to work with me. I, uh, I think that every one of us, and I can speak for all of us, deplore what happened in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th, 2021. What, what happened there at the Capitol uh, should, should not happen. And we all hope that we never see images like that again. The crowd that was there was incredibly large. There's no way to get a photograph of the whole crowd. That's just down one side of the mall. The mall is a mile wide and about two miles in length. So from the Capitol building to the Lincoln Memorial, I've led tours there for years, it's two miles. It's one mile from one side to the other. That's one side of the mall area. There is another picture of of folks in the kind of the middle area where the big sidewalks are in the middle of the mall. And then there is a picture around the the Washington Monument. In the distance, you can see the Jefferson Memorial. It's about uh, a half a mile to there and about a half a mile from the Washington Monument back behind you to where the White House is. And then from right to left, it would be two miles from the Lincoln Memorial on the right and the Capitol on the left. The, the Washington Monument is about halfway. It's about a mile. The reason why I'm saying that is because people who are here had no idea what was taking place a mile away. They, they couldn't even see it. And with the size of the crowds, you realize that the ones who breached the Capitol were a, a, a very tiny fraction of the people who were there, who were there at a rally to stand behind the president, but the, the principles that he stands for more than, than just the, um, the president. Uh, what we all suspected is now being confirmed in the news. They are now telling us that there were plans for this uh, riot uh, days or hours before. In fact, the FBI released uh, a report the end of this week that said that they found pipe bombs outside the Capitol building that had been placed there the day before. Uh, on January the 5th. So it's pretty obvious to me that this was a a setup. Now, sadly, some Trump supporters got involved in it. They should not have. They will more than likely pay a a, a high price for doing that. We should always act prudently. Remember, Jesus said, be as wise as serpents, harmless as doves. So I'm saying all of this because we deplore the kind of violence that we saw at the Capitol on January the 6th. But as you know, the, the left, which has now become synonymous with the Democrat Party, uh, did not waste any time to jump on what happened and began to use it for political clout. And we live in a day when everything seems to be a spin. No matter what happens, it appears to me that it will always be spun to promote the left anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-morality, and to always inculcate the, the, the conservative and certainly the conservative Christian. 
they started using mantras as they always do. You've, you've heard them over and over. Like, for instance, uh, the mantra that we've heard for years, the rich should pay their fair share, ignoring the fact that those who are wealthy pay an incredibly high percentage of their income. Uh, I believe it's unfair and unconstitutional the level to which those that we consider rich uh, are taxed. It's, it's unbelievable. So they actually are paying their fair share and then some. Uh, you've heard the mantra since November the 3rd and a little bit before that, count every vote. Well, we would all agree with that if we're talking about legal votes, right? But you see, a mantra like this can, can be broad-brushed to say, just count every vote, just count them all, doesn't matter, which is exactly, of course, what I think happened. What about this mantra, white privilege, white privilege, white privilege? And then, of course, you use the white privilege mantra to try to paint everybody who is lighter skin color uh, a racist. And then one that has come out of January the 6th that I want to actually focus on today, and that is this mantra, violence is never an option. Now, if you're talking about what we saw at the Capitol on January the 6th, I would say, well, they're right about that. That's deplorable. I think every one of us in here would join together to condemn what went on at the Capitol. But there's also video now seeming to indicate that many of the Capitol Police were taking down barriers and inviting the people to come on into the Capitol building. Now, I've led tours to the Capitol building, and you can't ever get into the Capitol that way. Uh, You have to be sponsored by a congressman or a senator. And then even then, you have to be very careful. I'm talking about private tours. You can actually go through the visitor center and have guided tours, which are also very controlled. So all of this is really disturbing to me. And now it's being used, as you know, to to crank down the, the thumb screws on anyone who says anything of dissent because you're promoting violence. Well, that's not necessarily true. And as I just said, I deplore what happened. And yet, these things are now being loaded up and used against us. So I want to ask and try to answer the question today, when is resistance proper? Now, as I said, this is a second part to a message that I preached two weeks ago. The first part was on stewardship entitled, Good Steward, Bad Steward. In that message, we saw that a steward is a person who utilizes and manages all of the resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of His creation. A steward will often determine whether the master's business will succeed and prosper or not. That's how important a steward is. We saw that we are all stewards. You and I are stewards. We're stewards of ourselves. We must police ourselves spiritually, physically, mentally, We're stewards of our families, family government. Paul emphasized that last week. We're stewards of our faith. We're to live a life that would exemplify Christ if we claim to be a Christian. How many times have you talked to someone who said, Oh yeah, I've seen some of you Christians in action. If that's what being a Christian is, I don't want to have any part of it. Well, they weren't being a good steward if they really were a Christian. We're stewards of our church. We're stewards of our communities. This is one of the reasons why I constantly uh, encourage people to run for office at the city and the county level because we've seen now how powerful city councils and mayors can be if they're willing to just take the law into their own hands and do whatever they want to do and use power that they do not have. We need people there to stand up and say, no, 
You don't have that authority. But then the very last one is where I want to focus today, and that is that we're stewards of our country. But what I literally mean by that is the liberty and the justice, not social justice. As Paul mentioned last week, justice. There is no such thing as social justice. There is justice and injustice. There are not different levels and flavors of justice. What is just for you may not be necessarily just for me. What's just for them may not be just for him. That, that, that's completely ludicrous and illogical. So I'm talking about justice. You and I have been handed by virtue of the fact that we grew up in a free land and in a free state, liberty that I think most of us desperately want to pass down to our children and our grandchildren. You know, it was hard for me to understand the love that a parent has for their child until I had a child. And then I always thought that people went nuts when they became grandparents until I found out why. Because now I'm just as nuts as the rest of you who are grandparents. But I understand that it's almost like a second chance, you know. When you were young and you had your children, you were so busy, there were moments that you couldn't savor with them that you now wish you could have. And now that you're older, maybe you're able to learn from that and savor those moments with your grandkids. And I think that's part of the reason that grandkids are such a blessing. It's kind of a second chance to make every moment count that you can, right? Uh, please answer that. Anyway... Um, We are stewards of this. And then I mentioned that we're going to have to give an account for our stewardship. Either the lack of it, or the poor stewardship, or our good stewardship. It'll be the good steward or bad steward. Now primarily here, I'm talking to believers. Now if you don't know Christ, then you're going to answer to God for your own sin like I would mine. Unless you have Christ to forgive you of your sins and to use His blood to cleanse you. And then His death on the cross will answer for you. Okay, So if you don't know Christ today, you desperately need to know Him. If you're listening online or maybe later on in a recording and you're not sure if you died right now, you'd go to heaven. You need Jesus more than you need liberty or anything else. But for those of us who know Christ, we're going to answer to the Lord for whether or not we've been good or bad stewards. Now that was the gist of the message last week. Now here's what I want to go from here. When we talk about stewardship as a citizen, when we talk about stewardship of liberty and justice, it's a very difficult subject because there's been so much incorrect teaching on the subject and so much confusion in the media, and you've seen it since January the 6th. All the lines have been blurred, and now if you're Ted Cruz or any other conservative that stood up in the Senate and said, hey, I object to certifying these electors until we check out this this election fraud. Now, you're an anarchist, and you should be removed from the Senate. So all of a sudden, all the lines have been blurred, and you can't object, or you're an anarchist, or you're pro-violence, you're pro-groups storming the Capitol. Now, part of that has happened in the church because we haven't understood things like Romans 13, 1 through 5. Now, I don't have time to go into that today, except to tell you that the Bible teaches that there are times when resistance is not only the right thing to do, but God will reward you for it. Look at the Hebrew midwives, including Moses' parents. Look at Queen Esther, who goes into the king violating the law, and she could have been executed, but she's trying to save her people. Look at the three asbestos boys. They wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't burn. And they were defying the government of their days. Look at Daniel. 
He knew that it was against the law to pray, but he prayed anyway, not to prove a point. That was simply his commitment to the Lord. And so he lived up to it. Look at the apostles, how they refused to be silent. Look at how Paul was treated, even as a Roman citizen, and sometimes had to invoke his Roman citizenship to prevent getting an illegal beating. Look at Jesus refusing to follow the Jewish Sabbath laws. All of this is evidence that there are times when we must stand up and say no. Now, I know what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. He says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, well, live peaceably with all men. But notice he says, if it is possible. I've already given you some examples when it is not possible. Now, I know there are a lot of people who want to then jump to Romans 14 and quote verse 19 of that chapter. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do you know in context what he's talking about there? He's talking about eating meat that had been offered to a Gentile idol. He's not talking about tyranny. He's not talking about someone who says, I'm going to strip you of your God-given rights. I'm going to shut the church down simply because I want to. That's not even what he's talking about in that context. So we always have to be careful about how we use Scripture. Now, you're probably familiar with a lot of Old Testament passages of Scripture that jump out at you that seem to go counter-cultural to the way the church is today. For instance, Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower. Notice these are all military terms here. My deliverer, my shield. And the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament. That doesn't apply. Well, hang on. You say, well, that's under the law. That doesn't apply to me. Well, hang on. Is this true or is it not? Is this a timeless truth? Or is it only limited to the time in which the psalmist wrote it? You're probably familiar with this passage in Exodus chapter 15. By the way, that passage comes out of a worship song. It's basically what this is. In Exodus 15, the children of Israel were having a worship gathering because God had drowned their enemies in the Red Sea. And here's what they said. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. So understand the context. They are celebrating the destruction of of the Egyptian army, meaning those soldiers are D-O-A. They're dead. They're dead on arrival. And yet they celebrate this and put it into a worship song. Now again, you're saying, well, that's the law. You know, that's the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses. Well, let's go back 500 years before the law of Moses. I don't have time to go into deep detail here, but you know in Genesis 14, Lot and his family and many others have been captured by some evil kings. And what does Abraham do? Say, well, we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray. There's nothing else we can do. So we're just going to pray because, you know, I can't stand. I can't offer any resistance. Uh, Violence is always wrong. It's never an option. No, in fact, notice he arms 318 of his trained servants and he declares war on those evil kings. And he goes and he delivers Lot by splitting up his forces like Lee did at Chancellorsville. And he actually prevails in a battle. Now... In case you're wondering if God approved of that, later on in that passage of Scripture, 
a priest by the name of Melchizedek that the book of Hebrews says was a type of Christ, probably a real man, but a type of Christ, a priest for God, does what? Notice he says, he blesses Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here God, through his priest, is blessing Abraham and saying, it was God who gave you the victory. You all know the story of Joshua fighting the Amalekites. It's not the only battle he was involved in. But this is the one where Moses is up on the hill. And when he drops his arms, the Amalekites prevail. When he lifts his arms, Joshua and the Israelites prevail. And so Aaron and Hur go up there and hold up Moses' arms. Joshua wins a mighty battle among many because God was on the scene. You're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. We learned that way back when we were in nursery. How David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And why he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And we know the story. God did deliver Goliath when no one else was willing to stand. Later on when David was an older man in his adulthood, the Bible tells us that God gave David instructions as to how to defeat his enemies. Gave him a battle strategy. Now what I'm developing here is something that's very simple. Throughout Scripture, God ordains resistance to evil and to tyranny. It's just a biblical principle. And we're going to have to slice and dice and reinterpret passages of Scripture not to believe that. For instance, later on, years later, when Jacob Maccabeus and and the other Jews said no to the Roman Empire and they stood up against them in what is now called a Maccabean uh, revolt lasting from 167 B.C. to 160 B.C. And in that process, they recaptured Jerusalem. And once they had cleansed the temple and the altar, they celebrated. And today, Jews celebrate that day every year as Hanukkah. All because a group of Jewish believers in the Old Testament period stood up and said no. Over and over and over in human history, there are times when tyrants rise up and then the people of God have to begin to decide what to do and what level of resistance is necessary. Now, I have already told you that what happened on January the 6th is uh, abhorrent. All of us saw it and we heard it, and we don't want that kind of thing to happen. At the same time, I've been made a steward of liberty and of justice, and my children and my grandchildren, to some degree, are going to live a life dependent upon what I do to protect that liberty and that justice, and to whether or not I'm a good or bad steward. And I'm telling you right now, the American church is being a very poor steward. Now there's a passage of scripture. I don't want to make more of it than it is. And yet it is there. It's in Luke 22, 36 for years. I'd read the scriptures and hadn't read that. I must've skipped over it somehow, but here's Jesus instructing the disciples not long before he's going to go to the cross and then ascend back to heaven. And he tells the disciples that at one time he sent them out without money, without provisions, and the people were to take care of them. He said, but now I'm telling you, you need to make provisions. And then notice the last part of the verse. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. 
Now, Jesus, I do not believe, was intending the disciples to spread the gospel by the force of the sword like the Muslim people do. But I think what he was recognizing is that he was going to send his people out like sheep unto wolves, and there might be times when they needed to defend themselves. It's the only conclusion I can draw from that passage of Scripture. If we go to our own history, this is a painting of April the 19th, 1775 in Lexington, Massachusetts, what we call the Battle of Lexington. Were they doing the right thing? Were they doing the wrong thing? I'm convinced they did the right thing. And remember, by the way, if you don't know the story, they were walking away from the Redcoats when they fired the first shots. The first shots were fired into the backs of the Lexington men. So you need to remember that. They did not fire the first shots. They did not bring on the war first. They responded in kind, and in the process, eight of them were killed right there in the churchyard of Jonas Clark, and another ten were wounded, all led by a preacher and a deacon. But he wasn't the only preacher. You know that I travel around doing the black robe presentation. And there was a preacher who grew up in Pennsylvania as a Lutheran who ended up pastoring in a place called Woodstock, Virginia, just a little wilderness community. His church was made out of logs. His name was Peter Muhlenberg. And he became kind of the quintessential black robe regiment preacher, serving in the Virginia House of Burgesses with George Washington and Patrick Henry. He was recommended to to be the colonel of a brand new regiment being raised out of Virginia, the 8th Regiment out of Virginia. And so he goes back to his church and on January the 21st, 1776, he preaches out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, drawing special attention to verse 8, where the Word of God says that there is a time of war. Obviously, there's also a time of peace, and that's what we all desire. But he says there is a time of war. And then he closes his Bible. He steps down in front of his people, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, there's a time to preach. There's a time to pray. But there's also a time to fight, and that time has now come for me. And then he steps off to the side, and he removes his clerical robe. He removes his clerical preaching bands like I do every time I do the presentation somewhere across the country. And he revealed to his congregation the colonial uh, colonel's uniform that he had on, and he begins to recruit the men of his church and the community. Here's what's going on, and a bunch of men from the community come and sign up and become a part of the 8th Virginia Regiment. And he leads them from 1776 to 1783, all the way through the war. In fact, in Statuary Hall in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., his statue stands in what is called the crypt, but there is no body there. It's just simply the basement to the capital because they intended to bury George Washington there, but he wanted to be buried at uh, Mount Vernon. And so there stands in marble Peter Muhlenberg. Notice flowing over his right arm and back behind him the robe that he pulled off to lead the 8th Virginia Regiment. Now, there's a reason for this, and it's not just because these guys were spoiling for a fight. You've heard Paul many times mention John Witherspoon, the Presbyterian preacher who also became the president of what became Princeton University. He was one of the members of the Continental Congress that helped to draft, pass, and then declare independence from Great Britain, pass the declaration, and then declare our independence. It was him. He gave the speech that helped to push the guys over the edge. A Presbyterian preacher, the president of Princeton, which was primarily in those days a seminary. I could tell you story after story. This is Samuel Cooper. He was the pastor of the Brattle Street Church in Boston. He and uh, Benjamin Franklin were close friends. In fact, they were what we'd call uh, pen pals and, and communicated back and forth when Franklin was in Europe. You may have heard this quote before, but listen to what he says. This is a preacher 
A sermon, 1780, peace, peace, we ardently wish, but not upon terms dishonorable to ourselves or dangerous to our liberties, and our enemies seem not yet prepared to allow it upon any other. At present, the voice of providence, the call of our still invaded country, and the cry of everything dear to us all unite to rouse us to prosecute the war with redoubled vigor. Notice, prosecute what? The war. Upon the success of which all our free constitutions and all our hopes depend. On December the 11th, 1784, after the war is over and America is free from British control, a preacher named George Duffield preached this message on December the 11th. Hard alternative, he says, to resign liberty or wage this hazardous war. And yet none other remained. But liberty was the prize. She chose freedom or death as her motto. And nobly resolved on war with all its horrors that at least her last expiring groan might breathe forth freedom. Because you see, they didn't at the beginning have any guarantee of success. And probably had you asked them, they didn't give themselves much of a chance. Listen to this pastor. His name is Josiah uh, Stearns from Epping, New Hampshire. This is a little portion of a letter that he wrote home to his sons. I want to quote. He says, If the cause succeeds, it will be a great blessing to the country. Now he's writing from the battlefield. But if it should fail, your old father's head will soon be a button for a halter. That means a hangman's noose. You see, this preacher from Epping, New Hampshire, understood what was at stake. He knew that if the cause of liberty failed and the British won, they would execute him. But you see, he was willing to make that stand anyway. This is a famous painting painted by John Trumbull of the battle of uh, what we call Bunker Hill. It was more the battle of Breed's Hill. But this is a picture at Bunker Hill when Joseph Warren was killed down here at the bottom. But if you'll look right up here, many of you have seen this. There's a man wearing preaching bands. Well, that's because he is a pastor. Uh, That's Dr. Samuel McClintock. He was a pastor from New Hampshire. He was there fighting at Bunker Hill. He wasn't the only pastor who was there, but I'm just drawing attention to him. His family was so committed to the cause of liberty, by the time the war was over, three of his four sons had died for liberty in the war. On June the 3rd, 1784, after the war is over, I want you to listen to this excerpt from that man's sermon that fought at Bunker Hill. He said, War was not our object or wish. On the contrary, we depreciated it as a dreadful calamity and continued to hope, even against hope, that the gentler methods of petitioning and remonstrating might obtain a redress of grievances. The war on our part was not a war of ambition, but a justifiable self-defense against the claims of arbitrary power which was attempting to wrest from us the privileges we had long enjoyed and to subject us to a state of abject servitude. It was after we had been treated and repeated insults and injuries, after our dread, uh, dutiful petitions had been rejected with contempt, after the British administration had held up the high claim of authority to make laws binding us in all cases whatsoever. Does anything sound remotely familiar to you? The plain language of which was, we have authority and power to do with you as we please. You wear a mask. And you do it, do it right now because we said so. But, sir, we're not sure that... It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We've got the science. Well, what about people with equal degrees in science that say this is not the right course? doesn't matter. Shut your church down. Shut your business down. Get in your house and shut up. Yep. We have the authority. Yep. Does it sound familiar? Yep. 
You pay these taxes. Even though Harry Reid said our tax system is voluntary. What an idiot. Tried not to, to involuntarily pay your taxes. Don't volunteer on April the 15th and see what happens. Because he goes on, and if you will not quietly submit, this is what the British were saying, and deliver up your earnings to support us in our luxury and extravagance, huh? How is it that people who are worth what we're worth go to Congress making 175000 a year and come out multimillionaires? And they all do. And be hewers of wood and drawers of water for us. You know what John Kerry said this week about the thousands? Some are saying now with the executive orders that President Biden has signed so far, he's laid off over a million workers. Do you know what John Kerry said about all of the oil field workers? Let them make solar panels. That was his response. He's the same guy that just recently predicted that the earth only has nine years left and then it's gone. Well, I hope he's the first one that sizzles. I'm telling you that right now. We will lay waste uh, your country with fire and sword, he said, the British said, and destroy you from under heaven. It was after the sword had been drawn, he says, and bloodshed on the plains of Lexington, Battle of Lexington, and on the fatal Bunker Hill, so that no alternative remained but either absolute submission or open resistance. It was, I say, remember this, a preacher. It was, I say, after all this, that the representatives of the people in Congress chose the latter, declared for, it, uh, declared for independence, and relying on the justice of their cause and the aid of the Almighty, resolved to support it by force of arms. He said it was after all of these things. Moses Mather was a pastor, a graduate of Yale, pastored in Connecticut for 64 years. There's no portrait available of him as far as I know, but this is his tombstone. And I want you to listen to a little excerpt of a sermon that he preached. At a time when we are called upon to surrender our liberties, our religion and country, or defend them at the point of the sword against those that were our friends, our brethren and allies. He's talking about the British here. See, he's Englishman. Whose swords and ours till lately were never drawn, but for mutual defense and in joint battalions, cemented in love, affinity and valor, have wrought wonders, vanquished armies, and triumphed over the power of mighty potentates. Notice he's saying the British have been our friends. They've been our allies. But he says nothing will inspire our counsels with unanimity, our resolves with firmness, and render the exertions, the noble struggles of a brave, free, and injured people, bold, rapid, and irresistible, like a right understanding of the necessity and rectitude of the defense we are compelled to make in this unnatural contention. Notice these preachers are saying, we don't want this. Now, in case you think that it was just a few hotheads and the British weren't doing anything all that, that nasty, this is the president of Yale, Naphtali Daggett. When the British invaded New Haven, Connecticut, he and about 100 boys from the school rode out and fired a few shots at the British so the citizens of New Haven could evacuate. They captured him and they beat him so brutally that he never recovered and he died a few months later from his injuries. He nearly died of dehydration as they made him march through the town poking him with bayonets. That's the kind of enemy they were against. This is Pastor Thomas Allen from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 
He was a great fighter. His story's amazing. But he had a brother named Moses. Moses Allen was also a fighter and was standing up for liberty. But he was captured by the British and he was thrown on this ship, the Jersey prison ship. He was not only persecuted there, but he was tortured there. So much so that he couldn't take it anymore and he tried to jump overboard and swim to safety, but he didn't realize how emaciated his body had become and he didn't have the strength to keep himself on top of the water and they stood there and watched and didn't give him any aid while he drowned. That's what they were up against. I have here in this book, and by the way, if you've never read this, you may not like the writing, but I'm telling you, the stories are unbelievable. I, I, this week in preparing for this, I was going back through some of this, and I'm thinking, who is the brilliant individual who wrote this? Because <laughs> I would like to meet him. No, but there are stories, and I don't have time because it's 10 till, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting there, so I'm, I'm almost there. But there's a story in here of an old preacher in his late 70s named Ebenezer Prime. It's about a page and a half of what the British did to him and his church. You can't believe it. It's unbelievable what these people were facing. So when John MacArthur used to say, I don't think he says it anymore, but when John MacArthur used to say that our framers basically wanted to go out and shoot some Englishmen, that is such an incorrect and understated fact that he ought to be embarrassed for having ever said it. And I have deep respect for John MacArthur. But I'm telling you, friends, these are examples that I'm trying to lay in front of you, not because I want some kind of war. I deplore what happened on January the 6th. I deplore what is going on in Washington, D.C. right now with this left lopsided government now and everything that they are doing. I deplore what is happening. The question is, what will we do when they do more? Where are you going to stand Are we going to hide behind Romans 13 and say, oh, well, we just have to submit? Are we going to hide behind violence is never an option? Well, I'm squeamish of violence. I don't want any violence. I don't want war. I don't want to see bloodshed. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Defiance, but if you haven't, you need to. Daniel Craig, who is the now known James Bond personality, is in this movie. It was made 10 years ago, I think. But it's the story of the Jews in Belarusia who actually ran out into the forests because they could in those days, nothing like infrared cameras and all that kind of stuff. And and they went out into the forest and they lived, but they fought as guerrilla soldiers fighting for their liberties. If you've not seen that movie, I beg of you in this day and time, you need to watch that movie. There are just moments in time when we have to say no. This is another Lutheran preacher who never knew Peter Muhlenberg. He was a German preacher. He was in America, clear from the Nazis. He saw what was going on in Nazi Germany. He said to his friends, I'm going back. They said, oh, Dietrich, if you go back, you're a dead man. He said, how can I abandon my people at this moment? And when this is over, who will be there to put Germany back together? And so he went back to Germany. But he became a part of the resistance as a Lutheran preacher was a part of things like Operation Valkyrie and other attempts to try to assassinate Hitler, believing if they could cut the head off of the snake, they could stop the atrocities that were going on. Well, the Nazis finally captured him, moved him from one concentration camp to the next, and finally he ended up in the final camp that was liberated two weeks 
after he was hanged with a piano string. You see, this is the heritage that Christians have to live up to. This peace at all costs, surrender in the name of Christ, crawl around on the ground and apologize. Where did we get that spirit? What happened to the men in the Christian church around the country? Where did our masculinity go? And it wasn't just the men. Ladies, you remember a few, some of you are here uh, two Mother's Day ago. I preached founding mothers. I even had with me on stage a musket of one of the founding mothers. What happened to our spines? So violence is never an option. Well, I guess then that that would have caused D-Day to either never happen or end up in colossal failure. I guess then Europe and maybe Great Britain and maybe by now the United States of America would all be Nazi controlled. Violence is never an option. I guess you need to tell that to the boys on Iwo Jima. When the imperial Japanese decided that they were going to take over the world and had a pretty good jump on us, just like the Nazis in Europe, they in the Pacific, never a place for violence. Violence is never an option. Tell that to men and women who have stood up and defended our liberties at the price of their own lives. Tell that to those countless parents who've seen it. Tell that to pastors like Charles Van Wyck, who has been here, who was a pastor in South Africa, who was a missionary. Some thugs came into his church on June the 25th, 1993, and began to shoot people and had bombs and started setting those up. They managed to kill 11 of the members and wounded 58, but he pulled out his pistol and shot one of them. And just that much resistance stopped their attack and they left the church. They now believe that by his actions, he saved countless lives and those thugs would have probably killed everyone in that church, including him. So say violence is never an option to that pastor. Or how about this pastor? We don't know whether that's his grave or not because we don't really know where he's buried. But he was murdered in our war of independence. His name is John Rossbrug. He pastored at the Forks of the Delaware in what used to be rural New Jersey. He was 63 when the war first started. He felt he was too old to go fight. So he helped to care for the families of the men who were younger that went on to fight. But after the colonial army and George Washington were nearly wiped out in New York at the Battle of Long Island, he, uh, he decided that uh, maybe it was time for a different course. He called the remaining part of his congregation together and he said, Men, we must rally to the aid of General Washington and to liberty. And his men said, Preacher, we'll go if you will lead us. And he led them. They caught up with Washington and the army outside of Trenton, New Jersey. They were part of the Battle of Trenton on December the 26th, 1776, when America won a dazzling, startling victory over the Hessians. But a week later, there was a second battle of Trenton that most people had never even heard of, where the British and the Hessians tried to retake Trenton. 
Rossbrug got separated from the Americans by a creek. And he knew that if he crossed the creek on horseback in the daylight, the redcoats would catch him and they'd either torture him or they'd just kill him flat out. So he rode all day long trying to evade capture and he succeeded. But when he went to a little tavern to try to get him something to drink and something to eat, when he came outside, his horse was gone. Now he's caught flat-footed. He was going to cross the creek when the sun set. And even though the British would hear what was going on, they'd not know what had happened until he was already safe on the other side. So he starts looking for his horse and he works through the trees and the, bush, uh, the, the bushes and he, he works his way through a, a thicket of brush and comes out on the other side to a squad of Hessian soldiers with their guns pointed at him, commanded by a British officer. Now the reason we know what happened from that point, in fact even before that point, is because one of those Hessians went running into town celebrating that he had killed him a rebel preacher. So what happens is Rossbrug offers himself as a prisoner. He tells them that he has a family, but they know he's a preacher. And they just laugh at him and he knows they're going to kill him. Now here he is trying to surrender and they're going to kill him. And so he prays. Some of you have seen me act this out. He prays and then he rises up from his prayer and they jump on him and they bayonet him to death. All while he was praying for them and asking them to take him as their prisoner. His body was buried quickly in a shallow grave and then later on another black robe preacher. I, I quoted a little part of a sermon, George Duffield earlier. George Duffield and Ross Brugg's wife and her brother found his body and gave him a more decent Christian burial. No one's quite sure if he's buried exactly where this tombstone is, but that's his tombstone. We don't know what he looked like. This is a portrait of his son, James. But a faceless, almost nameless man died because he believed in something so strongly that he knew he had to stand. His Christian faith required it of him. Now there was a historian in the 1800s. We really didn't have official historians in the 1800s. But there were men who collected the stories and got them out of old family Bibles and other pieces of of letters and things. And his name was Joel Headley. And Joel Headley wrote a history of the black robe preachers. Gave sermon quotes. It's, it's how I cut my teeth on the whole story of the black robe regiment. And I want you to listen to what Joel Headley said about John Rossbrug. He said, and I quote, Let the scrupulous Christian of today condemn, if he can, this noble divine, that's what they used to call preachers, for fighting in defense of his country. He had no doubts of the righteousness of his conduct when passing with prayer on his lips into the presence of his God. Amiable, kind, and distinguished as a peacemaker, he had to overcome all his natural tendencies to war to take up arms. But having settled it to be his duty, he had no after misgivings. That's our heritage. That's a little bit of who we are. Why we've been able to meet here all of these years in our churches why I've been able to pastor around Oklahoma and a little bit in western Arkansas and not have to ask the government for permission. You know, John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he spent 10 years in and out of prison. Oh, his crime wasn't embezzling money from his church. His crime was not uh, running around and being uh, unfaithful to his wife. You know what his crime was? 
He preached without a license. Can you imagine? Preached without a license. The government demanded that pastors get licensed by the government for permission to preach. John kept telling the government, he said, Look, you didn't call me to preach, so therefore I don't need your permission to preach. They'd throw him in jail. After he'd sat in there for a few months, they'd say, Now, John, you understand, you need to get out and get a license. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. They'd let him out. You know what he'd do? He'd go right back to preaching without a license. They'd throw him back in jail. The stories are told of him looking out the windows of his jail cell, watching his little children have to work on the streets, and I don't mean immorally, but selling and doing different kinds of things and chores to try to make a living for the family because he was in jail and couldn't. Simply because he wouldn't get a license to preach. You think we'd take that kind of stand today? No, we'd go get the license. Or we'll do whatever it is. So friends, in closing here, we've been made stewards. I talked all about two weeks ago what stewardship means. You're a steward, and I'm a steward. And it's either good steward or bad steward. And we're going to answer to God for what kind of stewards we are. Please do not misunderstand me. I don't want war. Now let me say that again. I don't want war. Let me say it one more time. I don't want war. Now here's why. Because a few days ago, I got a call from an FBI agent who wanted to know about something that I had said in a sermon a few weeks ago. He was a kind enough guy. I think he's probably a good guy from all I could tell. But I went away from that phone conversation thinking, whoa, either people are turning us in already or they're listening. But he knew exactly what I had said. This is not a call to violence. But friends, I'm telling you, we better decide what we actually believe the Bible says about things like resistance. Is there ever time to resist? Is there ever a time to say no You cannot take my firearms. No, you cannot take my freedom of speech. No, you cannot take my freedom of religion. Or are we just going to roll over and go underground? That's the question. And it burns heavy on my heart today. It has been for weeks and months, maybe a few years. And I know a message like this can be misunderstood. And I'll probably be misquoted hundreds of times in the next few days. But I think for those of you who have listened to me, you know my heart. Friends, we must find out what we believe. And we better nail it down hard and fast. Because it just could be that in the coming months, those beliefs are going to be tested.